Welcome to the podcast for this, the second week of the Easter season. And uh, today, um, Alex is with me uh, instead of pastor, and we'll be taking a little bit of a, of a detour from the readings for the Easter season, because this Sunday we'll be observing the feast of Saints Philip and James. So we'll explain what that means in just a moment, but as usual, we'll start with the order of noontime daily prayer, uh, which is on page 296 of the Lutheran Service Book. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be, be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Amen. So for today, um, as I said, uh, we're not continuing with the uh, Easter season readings. We're taking a, a festival day for, for the saints. And so um, the reading for the epistle this week comes from the book of Ephesians. So, um, Alex, we should probably read that passage first, or would you rather comment on it first and then, and then read it? Yeah, let's start by reading it. Uh, so, yeah, the epistle reading is Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When you read this, um... Did it immediately occur to you why this was perhaps chosen for the epistle for this particular day? Well, the, the one thing that um, is mentioned in verse 20, um, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Um, so since we are celebrating two of those apostles, um, that is a, uh, I guess, clear connection there of why um, we are celebrating both, both of these uh, apostles on this day, and this is why this reading is chosen. Um, so, yeah, we have a connection with that being there um, and with all the saints, right? So, And I think the two, the two other readings, both the Old Testament and the Gospel for Sunday, kind of talk about discipleship and... and, and um, these apostles going forth and spreading, spreading the good news, um, uh, just kind of like like Timothy did too, and, and some of yeah. the other apostles that they were sent sent forth. Yeah, and the the gospel reading also very much clearly mentions Philip in there um, as he is asking uh, Jesus some questions. It's Philip and Thomas are the two mentioned in the gospel reading. So. Um, yeah, so in these verses, just kind of a quick summary of them, um, Paul shows 
uh, how Christ's work overcomes the alienation from God and his people um, that was symbolized so graphically by the divisions in the temple and then more broadly by the distinctive provisions of the Torah. Um, so as you can see in this uh, reading, there is the language of the temple, um, a building, you know, we, we hear about the cornerstone, uh, things like that. So all of this um, uh, building imagery. Um, so why do we see Paul using this language uh, specifically for the temple? He's, is he trying here to um, kind of, kind of uh, clarify the relationship between, between Christ and his followers um, and also the, um, the apostles themselves? Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, the whole temple imagery, if we remember um, the divisions of the temple, um, we have the most holy place, then the holy place, and then the courtyard. Um, kind of outside of that main structure. Um, and only the high priest on certain days was able to enter the most holy place. Only priests were able to enter the holy place. And then the courtyard was for all worthy Israelites. So after you had made your sacrifices and cleansed yourself and things like that. But now he is, he's using all this language because, yeah, there were those divisions for the temple only certain people could enter certain portions of the temple. And here he's saying, no, we are no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens. We are all fellow citizens, right? So this unity and uh, joining together is uh, very much clearly the theme. And he's emphasizing that through those temple divisions, which obviously also go back to the divisions in the tabernacle. So well, what's, what's interesting about those those divisions is, is how we've still retained some of those in, in a lot of our modern church architecture because we have we have this division in the church here between the what's behind the rail and what's in, in front of the rail the you know the chancel and the, and the nave of the church so in some ways we've we've um, reflected that we, we still retain those divisions now I know in a lot of um, more modern architecture of some churches, and you may have visited churches like this, where it's more of a fan-shaped church, there's no communion rail, um, and there are no steps. So the, the theory behind that, that type of uh, architecture, the liturgical theory behind it is, is that we are all on that same plane. There's no, there's no divisions between us. And by being in a, in a fan shape, you're often looking across the room at fellow parishioners. You're not just all facing the same direction. So there's a real thought that goes into why are, why are we shaping worship spaces in this certain way? Ours is a very traditional worship space where we're all facing the same direction. Well, this also ties into when pastor's doing prayers too, you know, which direction is he facing? Is he praying on our behalf or is he, you know, is he uh, addressing us? So, um, those subtle things do say a lot about, about what we're trying to communicate in, in worship. And this, this passage just kind of, you know, uh, uh, brushes up against that idea. Yeah, yeah. And I was, yeah, going to bounce off of that and say that it is important then, you know, to realize those small nuances that happen um, during the service. Um, because, yes, even though we still 
uh, model the architecture off of the temple for a lot of churches um, and you see those similarities, there are the things in the service that break that um, division that we saw from the old temple. So we see that, yes, you know, pastor, he is acting in the place of Christ or the priest, and therefore, you know, he brings that body of Christ to us. So Christ comes to us, and it is a part of that breaking those divisions there. Not only, you know, can one person be in the presence of Christ, but rather Christ's presence is now for everyone being brought to us, brought down to us. Um, and so, yeah, it is good to understand those small nuances in the in the service for those reasons and why pastor does things like that, like facing a certain direction or whatever else it may be. So, yeah, I like that. Um, this also goes with um, Paul's many other writings where you can uh, see he talks about the distinctions of uh, Jews and Gentiles. So as there were, you know, divisions for the temple, there are divisions in the people too. Um, and so this is, again, going to that whole theme of, you know, unity kind of bringing them together. Um, and so, as I said, you can see in many of the other epistles, he does talk about those divisions of Jews and Gentiles. There is no longer Jew and Gentile or Greek or all these other things, but rather we are all one. You know, we are one in Christ, and the in Christ part is uh, important to emphasize as well. Um, so then the next thing um, that I have is going along that theme of division and then unity. Um, and the joining or building together, um, the question then is presented, well, how is the unity of all Christians best achieved? Um, so for us, you know, we don't have Jew and Gentile, but we do have divisions amongst Christians, and we have divisions today, so our own particular divisions. How, how can we, how is that unity best achieved among us? I, I think if if um, if I'm understanding Paul correctly, it would be to to be faithful to Christ's teachings, and I think I think that is that is our struggle. Is is, is I think our sinful natures um, prevent us from from talking to one another and and really listening to what Christ is telling us, and 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 coming to some some kind of a kind of a unity because I think maybe our, our own pride or understanding gets gets in the way of really doing that. Yeah, yeah, and that is, yeah, that's exactly correct. Um, so again, like I said before, the important part here is really verse verse 20, I would say, and I mean you can you can go on, it, it elaborates more, but built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So again, it's that, that common confession of scriptural truth. And so it's not just, oh, hey, let's have um, a bunch of people just come together for the sake of coming together and just you know smash them together. No, it needs to be based on Christ Jesus, that cornerstone. Um, and it needs to be focused on scriptural truth. Um, and this is why Christ is the cornerstone mentioned here, um, because then, yeah, as you said, it needs to be 
um, based off of the Bible and its teachings, right? So we hear in John that the word became flesh. Jesus is that word that became flesh. And so Christ being the cornerstone, we root our faith in his word. Everything is on Christ, that word of God. And as I said before, the uh, joining together is not just this um, enlargement. Um, in one of the uh, commentaries I read, it, it called it an enlargement of the old Israel. So basically just saying like, oh yeah, we have these people and these people, let's smash them together and make it just one big people. It's not necessarily saying that. So, and in the same way today, we can't just think, oh yeah, well, let's just take two churches and smash them together because most of the time that ends up in there being a third church. You know, you try to take two different churches, put them together, and you end up getting a whole new church. And some people go back to the two older churches because that's normally what happens. But rather, you need to, it's this creating something new, which again goes into Paul's language that he uses in other epistles of this new creation or this new man or this new thing is being brought forward living according to the spirit rather than living according to the flesh so yeah well that that is a real that is always i think a real leap of faith for a lot of people because nobody likes to leave leave a, an identity behind yeah and you're mentioning the example of, of joining two churches together um i've noticed in some cases um when uh uh Roman Catholic churches, um, they're, they're told to consolidate together. Very often the model that they choose to, to do is they, they merge two small parishes or three or more parishes together and give them a brand new name. That way one church can't claim you know, a, a higher spot in, in, the, in the organization, in that hierarchy. They are creating something brand new, which I think eliminates that or goes a long ways towards eliminating that frustration of, of leaving something behind or giving, giving in. Yeah, and uh, the language here in verse 21 um, also, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Um, and so you can also kind of think of how the temple was destroyed multiple times and rebuilt you know, and each time that it's rebuilt, well, yeah, it's, I guess, good in some aspects that it was rebuilt, but this isn't actually what, you know, Christ is talking about, like, oh, let's just, you know, build this structure, right? It's not what Paul is talking about here. It's rather, no, the ultimate um, temple is Jesus himself, right? Growing into this body of Christ. It's not this physical building, but, you know, that's obviously the language that Paul is using here. Um, and so I, when I was just thinking about this, you know, uh, again, to go back, you can't just smash two things together. If you have a bunch of coins, you know, and you, you take coins and you have other coins and you put them all together, great, you have more coins. But that's not exactly what we're going for here. We're actually kind of talking about, well, let's take all those coins, melt them down, and then create something new, like a new coin altogether, um, because that's the kind of transformation that uh, Christ is looking for here, um, is in the spirit, right? So he uses this language that you want to be, um, 
being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, right? Um, and it's a holy temple in the Lord, right? And so it's not according to our flesh. We need that to be melted down. We need that to be broken down and that to be taken away from us, right? And then we are made into something totally new. It's not just the combination of all of us to go back to that. Um, we need to be remade and made new in Christ. And that's happening on a daily basis, you know, with our baptism, we are constantly being drowned and made into something new. And that needs to be continually happening as we are being made holy together, focused again on Christ, the word, these scriptural truths. And that's the only way this unity can happen. So. It's a, it's a, it's a, as a selection for a saint's day, I think it's a very good, very good reading to have uh, as a reminder of what, of what their mission is, is to spread, to spread this message uh, of unity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last thing that I had was, um, I know that our reading only focuses on verses 19 through 22, but I would encourage people to go back to verse 11 and read 11 through 22 because that whole section kind of has a um, parallel and contrasting structure to it. Um, and you can even think of it as a then and now mentality because in the earlier verses you get, well, this is what we were, right? This is what we were, what it was then. And then in the later verses you get, well, now this is what it is, right? And so it's parallel, but also contrasting. Um, so for example, just for the verses that we, that we read, we have in verse 19, um, no longer strangers and sojourners, other translations use aliens, which um, contrasts verse 12, where it talks about um, strangers uh, to the covenants of the promise. Um, and then also in verse 19, we see we are fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, which contrasts verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Um, verse 20, the cornerstone of the foundation being Christ Jesus himself, contrasts verse 12 of being separated from Christ. So instead of Christ as our, you know, kind of, as our cornerstone, our strong foundation there, we were separated from him. And then verse 21 and 22, like I said, uses those phrases in the Lord and in the spirit to contrast verse 11 using the language of in the flesh. So, and like I said, that whole section 11 verse 22 kind of has that structure throughout it. And verse 15 is kind of that turning point um, in, in the verses. So we won't go through all of it, but I just wanted to point it out since it is an interesting note for these verses here. Right, and it makes that that interesting contrast that that fits well with the with the Easter season. I think that's it's no accident that maybe that because that this particular feast day was you know found its home in the middle of the Easter season, that um, it it draws our attention once again that that everything has been made through through Christ's death and resurrection, that and then we're freed of the the Old Testament commandments and the law of the Old Testament. Um, just another another reminder of, of that fact. Yeah. 
Um, so what? So what about um, what? What about Philip and James themselves? What? What? What do we need to know about Philip and James so that that they that they merit a special day in the in the calendar of the church? Yeah. So I have uh, I have a printout here uh, of giving us a little background on Philip and James. Um, so I'll just go through it. Um, Saint Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee, the same town on the shores of Lake Genezareth that Peter and Andrew, James and John were from. We learn most about Philip uh, and this apostle of Christ from John's gospel. Um, after Christ found Philip and called to him, follow me, Philip in turn found Nathaniel and said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael was skeptical of our Lord's apparent Galilean origins, but Philip pressed him with the invitation, come and see. Um, and the church has echoed that invitation throughout the ages to any who are curious but doubtful. Um, so before the feast of Passover, um, at which our Lord was crucified and raised, some Greeks approached Philip because he was from Galilee and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. When Andrew and Philip together brought the request to our Lord, he promised, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. At the Last Supper, Philip, hearing Christ speak of the Father, begged to see the Father. Christ replied, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Um, after witnessing the Lord's resurrection, and the dispersion of the apostles, tradition suggests Philip journeyed to Scythia and Phrygia. He is reported to have met his death by crucifixion in Hierapolis. His symbol is therefore a simple Latin cross. And so that one part that I read um, goes into our gospel reading kind of of, I want to see the Father, right? That's in our, our gospel reading of John 14 for this week. Um, and Christ responds by saying that, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? James, then, um, is also commemorated today, um, but not to be confused with the brother of John and son of Zebedee. To distinguish the two Jameses, um, one is notified as the elder, which is usually attached to John's brother, and the less or the younger is attached to this James, who we are celebrating. Um, he was the son of Alphaeus. Um, presumably, it was his mother, Mary, who was among the women mentioned at the cross and the tomb. He had a brother, Joseph, um, and tradition suggests that he was martyred in Ostrakine in Lower Egypt. His apostolic shield sports a fuller's club, for he was reportedly beaten to death with one. So... There's our information on Saint Philip and James. Do, do you know why they're Do you know why they're paired together? I do not. I do not know why they're paired okay. together. Okay. Um, I was also intrigued. I I did read another book though that separated them two, um, but I don't know if that was just because they wanted to focus on one per day. Um, but it, it, in all the other ones, it does. Uh, all the other books, it does signify that it is both St. Philip and James Commemoration Day. 
uh, the same day, May 1st. Sometimes these, these traditions evolve and, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly where they came from. So yeah. uh, I guess we'll, we'll just take it on face value that they've always just been paired together and we, we don't quite understand why. Yeah. Okay, since it, uh, since it is a continuation of the Easter season, the Easter season is seven weeks long, uh, it's a great opportunity to explore some of the many great Easter hymns that we have in the hymn book. And today what I would like to focus on is a series of actually three hymns in the hymn book, 459, 460, and 458, because they're all related together. So if you have, a, if you have an LSB, a Lutheran service book, that's the numbers we're going to be focusing on. Once again, it's 458, 59, and 60. Some of these hymns are some of the oldest ones that we actually have uh, at our disposal. Let's start with uh, 459, Christ is Arisen. This one is actually about a thousand years old, so it's one of the, the oldest texts that we have in the hymnal. And it was used as a, as a refrain, some of the earliest hymns, because the, the population was largely illiterate, they would often have folk hymns that they would sing in response, or they would have uh, responses like uh, uh, Kyrie eleison would be one of their uh, responses. They, they understood what that, mean, what that meant, that it meant, Lord, have mercy. So maybe one of the leaders of the group, one of the, the clergy would recite a, a portion, and their response would be Kyrie eleison. Well, this is a, a type of one of those hymns, What's interesting is, is that as we've brought it forward into history, in some of our hymnals, they've retained the response of Kyrie eleison as the refrain. Others have modified it to Alleluia because it is a, an Easter text. In our current hymnal, LSB, they've, they've opted to put Alleluia's in, which for Easter makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And to a lot of people, I think they, they struggle with the idea of, of, wait a minute, we've just come through this whole 40 days of Lent this period of darkness, sing, singing Kyrie, you know, eleison the whole season, we're still doing it. I thought we were past all that, that, that we're in Easter, it's time to celebrate the resurrection. Um, think of it more as a, as a response, almost like amen, instead of, instead of uh, Lord have mercy. Uh, but that is the origin of it. That's why it, it has this, this really ancient character to it. On... Uh, Easter here, we did use this particular hymn as part of the gospel procession. Um, you weren't with us that, that, that day, Alex, but I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in that that's how we use this particular hymn in the liturgy that Sunday. And it works very well for that reason, because it does have this alleluia refrain to it. And the language of the text is very straightforward, very easy to understand, and you can you could see how maybe that would have been an original folk hymn from this this medieval period that you you if you're going to craft a hymn like that you wanted something very easy for the people to understand so um what i think might be appropriate for us to do is is actually sing it through um you said this may not be that familiar to you um, um, I'll, I'll try to try to lead it and, and, and join in as, as best you can. I, I'll, I'll uh, uh, admit Alex is a little bit of a disadvantage here because I just 
uh, I sprung this on him at the last, last minute that this is the hymn we were going to use. Christ is arisen from the grave's dark prison. So let our joy rise full and free. Christ our comfort true will be. Alleluia. Were Christ not arisen, then death were still our prison. Now with him to life restored, we praise the Father of our Lord. Alleluia. 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 Now let our joy rise full and free. Christ our comfort true will be. Alleluia. So you could hear in there where those alleluias are just inserted after other sections as kind of a kind of a call and response uh, type of a thing. And you could imagine the larger group of people uh, answering with that. So this text in itself is, again, about, about a millennium old, which says uh, a lot about um, the value of it that the church has placed on it over time, that it's retained it for this long period of time. Now, you, you might say, well, this doesn't sound like a very good Easter hymn because it sounds very, very minor, minor key. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of people would have that reaction to it. You have to put yourself back in time that before we, our ears kind of came to know this, this notion of uh, major key happy, minor key sad, what a lot of the church mu music was written in and are in what are called modes, the church modes. So rather than just having a choice of two, major happy, minor sad, they had these different church modes that just began on the different steps of the scale. This particular mode is called Dorian mode, and it's the closest, it's, it's, it's flavor is, is very close to what we would call minor, a minor key right now, but it's not purely purely like a minor. Back in that particular period, they actually felt that this particular mode uh, lent a, a sense of, of strength and seriousness, which when you think about Easter, I mean, this is, you know, this is the most important thing we could sing about, you, yeah. know, you, you know, way eclipses Christmas, actually, that, that the, the, just the, the gravity of what happens during Holy Week and Easter is something that definitely uh, requires a tune and, and a melody that has strength and seriousness to, to it. Others have said, well, it's, it's, they've described it as brilliant, cheerful, joyful, and majestic. Um, I think you'd be hard for a lot of people to actually equate it with being cheerful and joyful, but it definitely is, is majestic uh, and, and serious and definitely a strong, a strong mode, a strong melody. So those things um, are something that, that we've inherited from the church from this, from this earlier period of time. And I would encourage people to, to kind of give it a chance and make, make friends with this. On the, on the surface, it may not see that happy and joyful, but it definitely conveys that gravity that we're going for in the Easter season. Yeah. I know it's not probably the exact same, um, but 
when you said it reminds you or it's supposed to convey strength, it did remind me of my first thought was thy strong word. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Or yeah. something like that. I know it's probably not the exact same scale, but something like that has not exactly the most happy uh, tune to it, but still you can just feel its strength and presence. Right. And when, and when you look at the words of thy strong word, um, it has that refrain to it too. Alleluia, alleluia. And you think, wow, this is, this is kind of a dark alleluia. Yeah. But, but we've grown to accept that pairing, that those two go together. And yeah, yeah I, think that's a, I think that's a very good modern equivalent or example of, of how a, what we might perceive as maybe a minor or dark mode can actually have this sense of, of strength and seriousness about it. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's actually a, a very good parallel, separated by almost a thousand years, but we still it still resonates uh, to us in that same way. The name of the tune, if you're, you happen to be looking at it in the hymnal, is Christus Erstanden, which it's very common that a lot of uh, hymn tunes from German sources, they use the first couple words from the original German. And so Christus Erstanden means Christ is arisen. Well, a very literal translation to what we, yeah. we sang there in the, in the English. Christ is arisen. Um, so it, um, that's where the tune name comes from. On the facing page, it's very interesting, uh, page 460, there's another hymn, Christians to the Paschal Victim. This is the what's called a sequence. And a sequence was a piece that was sung in the in the, the Middle Ages that was kind of an expansion on very high feast days of what was happening right, uh, right before the gospel was read. So it's kind of an augmentation of this Easter story. We had Christ is Arisen, which was kind of the folk hymn. This sequence, what the way it was often rendered is, is you would sing part of the, the Christ is Arisen, then a special choir or maybe the clergy would sing part of what this is this called a, a sequence, this Easter sequence that would kind of flesh out the story a little bit more. And we, we actually did that one year with the choir here just to uh, kind of pair those two together. And it's, uh, it's, I think, a very, very striking way to tell the Easter story and to prepare for the hearing of the gospel. So I would encourage you if you have uh, the time uh, to do that, to just kind of read that text of 460 and see how that might be sung in alternation with 459. It makes for a very great celebration um, uh, on Easter that you have this expanded telling of the Easter story. These sequences are something that uh, the, the church at the Council of Trent, this is the, the Roman Catholic Church, they reduced the number of them to only four feast days in the church year, Easter, Pentecost, uh, Corpus Christi, and I'm forgetting what the fourth one is. But they felt that there were too many of them in the liturgy, and so officially they, they took all but these four out. Which in, in, what's interesting is that Lutherans um, kind of grabbed onto these sequences and kind of uh, uh, kept them uh, in use and perpetuated their use throughout the years. Because even though they're not, they're not biblical, they're free poetry, they felt they were very useful um, from a, a meditation on what, are, what was supposed to happen on these, on these feast days. They're still edifying for that same reason. 
Um, so the, the Lutheran Church, they retained them, and actually this alternation practice is something that they, they did during the Middle Ages and actually during the Reformation era. So this is something that Luther would have known himself. He would have had both, both of these in his ears, the Christ is arisen and this, this sequence that goes along with it. So you know Luther in his typical, his typical um, pattern was, hey, I can, I can do this one one better, I can do something else more useful, well maybe not, well, uh, something extra with this to get it into the, to the ears of the people. Um, and so what he did is he crafted his own hymn based on Christ is Arisen, and that is 458 in our hymnal, Christ lay in death's strong bands. And if you look at the title of the tune at the bottom of the page, Christ lag in totus banden, that is very literally what it means in German, Christ, Christ lay in the bonds of death. And so Luther decided he would just expand on this and create a, a hymn. He wrote the text and the tune. The tune is very obviously based on the Christ is arisen that we just sang. So if you found that unfamiliar, Alex, maybe this, this hymn would also be slightly unfamiliar to you. Yeah, probably. <laughs> like I said, I, I, just reading the titles, it did not ring any bells for me, but I also have not been here at Faith my whole life, so and some of them are a little foreign. <laughs> right, and it's not to say, not to say that I would, I would not characterize this as a, as a long-term favorite of the congregation here, but we've done it enough that I think people have, have grown to like it um, as, a, as a great uh, complement to some of the other Easter hymns like I Know That My Redeemer Lives and Jesus Christ Is Risen Today, which are, which are fine Easter hymns, but this just takes us back to a, uh, uh, some older traditions of the church. And of course, being Lutherans, um, how can you go wrong with something that, that Luther created, yeah. especially for the Easter season? The choir sang a, a, a choir piece this year that was based on two of the stanzas here, uh, basically one and five of this particular Easter hymn. It was recast uh, uh, with, a, with um, a different different melody. But what's interesting is in that choir piece, even the composer of that choir piece used some of this Dorian mode, this more minor sounding mode, I think to hearken back to Luther's hymn to, and to these older, uh, older Easter hymns and kind of lend it that sense of, of, um, of history to it. So uh, this hymn is seven stanzas long. We're not going to sing all seven. We're going to sing uh, uh, four of them on Sunday as, as, as one of the hymns for Sunday. But uh, for today, I think maybe let's just sing two of them. Let's, let's sing one and five, since those are the two that were fashioned into the choir anthem that we use this year. I would add that um, this text, uh, Luther wrote, wrote seven stanzas for this text. And they've all been retained in our, our hymnal, our Lutheran service book. And um, they were translated in the 18th century, or excuse me, the 19th century, the mid-19th century by Richard Massey, um, who was one of a handful of people that really saw the great value of these Luther hymns and wanted to be very faithful to them when he translated them to English. 
What's interesting about it is his translations have been criticized as being maybe a little bit stilted, a little bit clunky, because you're going from German into English. But for Massey, his priority was he wanted to make sure that he didn't change the meaning because he feared it would also change the doctrine. So as, as Lutherans, we can res really resonate with that, that you know, if you're going to mess with the poetry, don't mess with the theology. Yeah. And so he opted to make it accurate as possible for the doctrine that's contained in it, rather than going for uh, fancy verbiage and poetic beauty. Poetic beauty is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful goal to strive for. But for him, it was more important to stay true to the doctrine there. So um, let's go ahead and, and sing stanzas one and five. The melody you'll hear is very similar to Christ is Arisen. And, you, and you'll be able to hear how Luther got this melody out of that. But then he adds some phrases that aren't, aren't included there at all. Um, but ends with an alleluia, uh, just, like, just like the other hymn tune at 459. Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands for our offenses given. But now at God's right hand he stands and brings us life from heaven. Therefore let us joyful be and sing to God right thankfully loud songs of Alleluia, Alleluia. Here our true Paschal Lamb we see, whom God so freely gave us. He died on the accursed tree, so strong his love to save us. See, his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it, death passes o'er, and Satan cannot harm us. Alleluia. The phrase lengths are somewhat um, odd in this particular one. It has a poetic meter of 8787, 7874. So not really interchangeable with a lot of other tunes. And you may have noticed that sometimes even just the meter, the rhythmic meter of it, just didn't seem comfortable. Yeah. It just, that phrase ended very abruptly. This one seems way too long. It's not a very reg regular pattern like we find in a lot of our hymns. Mm -hmm. So I think it makes it maybe a little bit alien to a lot of um, uh, people's experience of well, what kind of a weird weird tune is this? But it, again, going back to Luther's time, oh, this was par for the course. They, they, they had a lot of tunes like this. Yeah. Yeah. And those, those tunes are, yes, not as commonly used, um, as you said, interchangeable with other texts. But once, once you do know some of those tunes, I find that those are some of the the best ones to sing. Oh, they are. <laughs> they, they, they are. They're, they're interesting tunes and they just, um, um, yeah, they, they've got a lot of, they, they hold up over time. They just have a lot of interest to them, um, which, you know, sadly, um, um, some of them are falling by the boards. There's, there's, there's tunes that did, haven't been carried forward from Luther's time just because they've been maybe a little bit too challenging. People never really caught on to them 
We have a number of them that are still in our, in our hymnals. I would guess they're not a lot of people's favorites, but they're still worth knowing. Um, they're, they're very sturdy hymns that are worth preserving. So let's, uh, let's uh, finish up with the end of daily prayer, beginning with our, with our miniature litany there in the beginning, in the middle. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our, Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, at this hour you hung upon the cross, stretching out your loving arms to embrace the world in your death. Grant that all people of the earth may look to you and see their salvation. For your mercy's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.